Hello and welcome to Syria's Lost Generation, a show about young people displaced by war. This show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Humanitarian Group's World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Liam Cunningham. This month marks 10 years since the start of the war in Syria, one of the deadliest and most devastating conflicts of our time. During a decade of fighting, at least half a million people have died. More than five and a half million have fled the country and become refugees in the Middle East and across Europe. Millions more are internally displaced. The war started as a popular uprising against the dictator Bashar al-Assad. You might remember those early images, thousands of Syrians in town squares chanting slogans against the regime that ruled with an iron fist for decades. That uprising morphed into a civil war, and then it morphed again into a sectarian one as foreign fighters streamed into the country. I became interested in Syria, having visited refugee camps in Greece. The stories of the young people drew me in, how they struggled to survive, the way many of them fled with their families, moving sometimes on foot through battle zones, and of course, where they are today and how they're coping. That's the subject of this podcast. Over the next six episodes, we'll hear from a lost generation of Syrians who should have led normal lives over the past decade, going to school and making friends, but didn't. Some of them are now refugees in the region and in Europe. Others are still in Syria, but have fled their homes and can't go back. We'll spend part of the show talking to medical workers who witnessed more trauma during the war than just about anyone. Not just witnessed it but experienced it themselves. Hello, David. Hi, Liam. David Enders will guide us through this story. He's an American journalist who lives in Lebanon. David covered the war from inside Syria. He reported from both rebel-held territory and government-controlled areas. He was briefly abducted at one point. He has also reported from neighboring countries, where the Syrian diaspora now numbers in the millions. So, David, before we get to our story for this episode, tell me, how did you come to cover the region? Well, I moved to the Middle East in 2003 and did my last semester of college at the American University in Beirut. And I wanted to be a journalist. And that was when it was looking increasingly possible that the U.S. would invade Iraq. And so I, I moved to Beirut to kind of position myself to, to be able to go there. Uh, I also have some family connections to the region. My mother's family is originally Lebanese. And um, in 2003, in May, I actually did go to Iraq and begin working there. And then I stayed in the region after that. And had you been to Syria before the war? I, I had. I had visited Syria many times um, beginning in 2003. It's, it's a gorgeous country, uh, but the government was also incredibly repressive. I had only really visited as a tourist. I hadn't really tried to work there very much because it was so difficult. And so most of my experience in Syria prior to 2011 was vacations and, and road trips. Uh, but in 2011, suddenly you had all these people who were empowered for the first time to really go out on the street and protest. And suddenly it was also possible to actually do some work in that context as well. The country opened up uh, to reporters to some extent after that. David, if I could ask you, um, what is it that draws you to actually go there and report on this these uh, events? Well, 
just like in Iraq, uh, it's important that we pay attention to what's happening. It'll continue to affect us. These are people that that locally where they live, people try to do their best to ignore them. And and I think continuing to just draw attention to their humanity at base is useful and it's it's a good place to start. Yeah, nothing will be done if it's forgotten. And uh, I suppose your job is to make sure it's not forgotten. So, Liam, I actually had a question for you. I was wondering how you became interested in refugee issues. Well, due to the um, cultural phenomenon of the uh, show I was involved in, the Game of Thrones thing, we were approached by HBO, who who had a, a tie-in with the uh, International Rescue Committee. I'm sure you've come across them in your in your travels. Um, and they asked us if we'd go out to Greece. So we went to uh, Lesbos. Uh, where the uh, the Myra camp is that burned down recently, um, and we were brought to a, a there was a smaller uh, family orientated camp there, and I was completely moved by meeting these unfortunate people. Uh, the strange thing that happened to me on a on a human level uh, was I was used to seeing the numbers, and I understand the media have to explain the enormity of the problem the numbers, you know, these swathes of people that are leaving. And, and I get that. Um, what was interesting was being on the ground and discovering, this will show you the extent of my naivety, that these extraordinarily wonderful people, that they're exactly the same as us. I think I had been, as a lot of people do, emotionally protecting themselves by saying, oh, it's awful and these poor unfortunates and I'm glad it's not me and whatever. But I think to emotionally take care of yourself, you kind of don't want to deal with the individualism of it because the horror is too much to deal with. And we create that compartmentalization in our heads. And then after that, when I came home to Ireland, I was contacted by World Vision, who are obviously involved in this podcast. And we went to Jordan to visit the two large camps, Azarek and Zatri, um, and, and met the people there. Just beautiful, beautiful people. And... I immediately put myself in their position because you do. And just said, what would I want these people to do if I, if I was in their position, which was very easily, which only happened 70 years ago. And we, I think a lot of people don't know that Syria, for example, I think took in between 70 and 100,000 Polish people during the Second World War. Uh, Syria was a destination for refugees in the Second World War. And how easy it is for or us to forget, as in Europe, to forget that not only is it morally the right thing to do to help these people, but we have an obligation. We owe them a favour because they looked after us. So I feel it's sort of a moral obligation to, to um, advocate on their behalf and just try and speak up for people who don't have a voice. That's what my involvement is. It was um, as much moral responsibility as guilt. <laughs> so so uh, that's why I wanted to get involved. Did Did people recognise you? No, not really. There was a slight concern that um, I would be a bit of a prize as regards kidnapping. Not because I'm Mr. Wonderful, because I'm in a well-known American television series and therefore I would have a certain amount of value. So we, we tried to keep who I was as quietly as, as possible. But obviously when you're arriving, as you know, with NGOs, you arrive when you're a celeb, for want of a better word, um, with an entourage, it, um, it, it can be a bit tricky. Um, it's also refreshing that they don't know who you are. What do you find most striking about it? I mean, for me, like with Azrak and Zatari, it's like the space that people have to subsist in. I just try to imagine living in, in you know, a, a 
tent that's a few square meters for years on end. It's it's appalling. Well, for people who may not have seen it, um, if they watched a movie called The Martian with um, Matt Damon, that was shot in Jordan and Jordan was being used for Mars. So if people need some sort of reminder of what, what the living conditions are, there were enough that Hollywood went to Jordan because it, it represented as close on Earth as we could get to the surface of Mars. So that's the kind of conditions that they were living in. But they still, they, listen, these people are wonderful. They still, I mean, the main the main street, as you know, in Azraq, I think it's called the Champs-Élysées, the main shopping shopping street. There were seven shops that were renting out wedding dresses. They had, I think, 21 or 23 weddings a week. These moments of humanity and people trying to get on with their lives in the face of desperate difficulty, they refuse to be beaten. And they still try to remain families and love their kids and, and look for love and, and marriage and schooling. And that's one of the things I took from it, uh, that life and, and the human spirit triumph in the face of adversity. I, f- I found that remarkable, absolutely remarkable. OK, so we'll hear more about how the war unfolds over the course of the podcast and about your own coverage of the conflict. But let's get to the refugees. Where does our story begin? We're starting here in Lebanon, a country that is home to more refugees per capita than any other in the world. And as you know, Liam, we'll be visiting with Syrian refugees in other countries as well. Uh, Their situation is different from place to place. What characterizes Lebanon and what we're focusing on on this episode is just how temporary their lives remain, even though many of them have been here for a decade. Okay. Well, let's meet some of them. The temperature is nearly freezing as Nisreen's mother tries to hurry her out the door to school. There is hot tea in a wood-burning stove in the center of the room, but the nylon walls of the tent offer little insulation. Camp 005 is less than five miles from the Lebanese-Syrian border but it's worlds away from the place 13-year-old Nisreen spent the first five years of her life. It's been more than eight years since Nisreen and her family, like hundreds of thousands of other Syrians, fled to Lebanon. When the war started, we were having breakfast and we heard a noise, so we got up to see what was happening. First, our father didn't let us go out and see, but then we did and we saw. We went out without wearing our shoes, we went out with nothing, and we were running and running so that nothing bad happened to us. It was 2012, and Homs, the Syrian city where Nisreen lived with her family, was gripped by violence. Like many other Syrians, they already had relatives in Lebanon and were regular visitors. But this time, they crossed the border on foot, illegally. We continued our way walking until we arrived here. When we first came here, we lived at our grandfather's place. But now, they're no longer here. They traveled. So we made a tent and we live in it. Nisreen's tent sits with about 50 others in a farmer's field, sandwiched between a busy road and a dairy barn. The people in the camp say they hardly notice the road noise, 
But to me, it sounds like when you have train tracks right next to your apartment. Life here in the camp is not a life. The one who wants to live in the camp will live as if he's in a prison. Because outside of the camp, he would be living a good and a happy life. It's like a prison here in the camp. There are approximately one million Syrian refugees living in Lebanon. About half of them live in what NGOs refer to as an ITS, or informal tented settlement. Most of those camps are located in the Bekaa Valley, a fertile plain about 1,000 meters high that sits between the two mountain ranges that dominate Lebanon's geography. Hello, this is my tent. Uh, we are uh, living in it uh, about uh, eight, years, eight years ago. Uh, we live in uh, this tent, uh, five, I and my uh, parents and my two brothers. We have uh, two rooms and uh, kitchen and bathroom. Winters in Baka can be harsh, but the Lebanese government prevents families from building concrete or cinder block walls higher than one meter. The tent becomes as if the wind is inside it. For example, the tent goes up and down because of the wind. And here, I get really scared and I start shaking. I'm afraid that the tent will collapse on top of us. So I'm afraid from the wind and when it's raining, there's also wind. But this year, it didn't snow yet. Attending school is one of the only things Nisreen does outside the camp. Today, she has an English exam. Nisreen and the other kids you'll hear from in this episode, Ayub and Ruba, are smart and diligent. Their future should be bright. But because Lebanon has gone to some length to prevent Syrian refugees from settling here permanently, they have no real path to a better life. I've been coming to camps like this for years to report, and it's heartbreaking to watch, seeing people in the same situation they were a decade ago. Most of the families in Camp 005 fled from the city of Homs. While the first protest took place in the southern Syrian city of Dara, it was Homs where the revolution became a war. Syria before the war was a place where politics weren't discussed. The Assad family has ruled the country for 50 years, first under Hafez al-Assad and currently under his son Bashar. He trained and practiced as an eye doctor in London was thought to be more sophisticated than his brutal father, Hafez, whom he replaced 18 years ago. The last attempt at overthrowing the government, a series of armed uprisings in the 1980s that resulted in hundreds of thousands of people being exiled from Syria, was put down so violently and completely that many Syrians born 20 years later had never heard of it. But as revolutionary movements and mass protests toppled Tunisia and Egypt's leaders in 2010 and 2011, Syrians were also inspired to call for their leader to step down. Those early demonstrations were met with a harsh, militarized response that quickly caused violence to spiral.
The popular story is that the revolution began when the government arrested and tortured teenagers who spray-painted an anti-government slogan on a school wall. But the truth is Syria on the eve of the war was a country riven with fault lines. Nisreen's mother, Raida, said the early days of the conflict were filled with rumors and confusion. First, we heard that they started the war in Dara when they cut off the fingers of the kids in school who wrote political phrases on the walls. I don't know what they wrote. We didn't see, but that's what they say. I'm telling you what they said. So Homs stood up for the kids that died. They started demonstrating each week and calling for revolution. And that's why it started here. We couldn't handle the injustice of them cutting kids' fingers. And for those kids, our people revolted. The revolutionaries in Homs soon became armed to protect against arrest. The army responded. When the military attacked our house, we stayed three nights and days. And I kept holding my children with my brother's wife next to me, and I'm sitting frozen from fear. Three days sitting like that, I can't move my hands or my legs from the voices and the bombs and the voice of the tank when it passes by. And after three days, the 4th Division came, which is the biggest in Syria. They came to our area. Why? Because we were defending our dignity. That is the reason. But the trauma didn't end with Syria. Syrians in Lebanon are subject to discrimination in every facet of their lives, from what jobs they can hold to the constant threat of arrest for the many who are in Lebanon undocumented. Until Lebanon's COVID-19 outbreak began last March, the camp residents say it was regularly raided by Lebanese security forces. Fear that armed groups would take up residence in the camps, as Palestinian militants did in previous decades, creating no-go zones for the Lebanese army, led Lebanese authorities to impose strict controls on Syrian settlements. In recent years, the raids have become mostly a form of harassment and discrimination, a way to keep Syrians in Lebanon from gaining too great a sense of permanence. Many Lebanese refer to the refugees euphemistically as guests and insist they must leave eventually. It's like the equivalent of having 80 million refugees coming to the United States within two years. No matter how unrealistic a mass return to Syria may be after a decade of war. Near Nisreen's tent, we're joined by Rami Shama, the operations director in Lebanon for the humanitarian group World Vision International. When we talk about uh, 10 years, I always say that uh, the senior refugee children have not been given the right. I mean, they have been put into more and more vulnerabilities because of the lack of solution. And uh, this is something that we always want to point out, is that when we look at generations to come, we're looking at generations that have not had any opportunity to excel in life. And thus, uh, the question is always there is, are they going to be scarred for the rest of their lives? And what could we do about this? COVID-19 has served to further isolate the refugees. Many men don't leave the camps regularly for fear they will be arrested for being in Lebanon illegally. And a series of lockdowns to prevent the spread of the virus have restricted movement further. However, no camp has so far recorded a serious outbreak of the virus, perhaps because of this isolation. 
Some joke that even COVID avoids forsaken places like the Bacaz camps. Nisreen recites poetry, often in English, to express herself and deal with problems like the raids. This one is by Maya Angelou. My dream. Shadows on the wall. Noises down the hall. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Bad dogs barking loud. Big ghosts in a cloud. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Tall guys in a fight. All alone at night. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Panthers in the park. Strangers in the dark. No, they don't frighten me at all. Don't show me frogs and snakes and listen for my scream if I'm afraid to all. It's only in my dreams. I've got a magic charm that I keep up my sleeve. I can walk the ocean floor and never have to breathe. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Not at all, not at all. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Before, the police raided our tents when we used to be asleep at 7 a.m. They pushed the door and come in. So I became really worried. But now, when I got older and I became more aware, I told myself not to be scared from anyone. And if they bring me the largest policeman, even if he's holding a gun, I will not be afraid of him. Camp 005 itself is a work in progress. There are always things to be repaired. When we meet 15-year-old Ayub, who attends the same school as Nisreen and whose family also fled homes, he's helping his uncle install a water tank outside the tent where he lives. Plumbing and sanitation in the camp is basic. Many of the toilets are outdoors, and an open ditch alongside the road serves as a sewer. We have uh, two rooms. And uh, we live uh, nine person in the tent. Who are those nine people? My brothers and uh, my uh, my parents and uh, the wife of my brother. Lebanon itself is a collapsing country. Mismanagement and corruption has caused its currency to lose 80% of its value in the last year, compounding the misery refugees face. Says the refugee influx has strained a cash-strapped government that has been unable to pick up garbage regularly or keep the electricity on. The United Nations estimates that 90% of Syrian refugees here live in extreme poverty. If pressed, many families will admit they have difficulties putting food on the table. Some go months without eating meat, normally a staple of the local diet. Child labor is common in Lebanon, particularly in agriculture. The problem has gotten worse as the Lebanese economy has collapsed and many young Syrians face a choice between work and school. Do you work when you don't study? In summer, uh, when no school, I will go to the, to the work. What kind of work? Farming, yes. And planting, yes. Are there many young people who do that kind of work? Yes, my friends in the camp. Some friends. He work in winter and summer. He don't go to school. For girls, the pressures can be even more severe. Child marriage is also a problem in the camps, and girls are often encouraged to stop studying at an early age. Nisreen's 16-year-old cousin, Ruba, is among those fighting conservative social mores in order to remain in school. A lot of people who live here say, you're a girl, where are you going? 
you're a girl, you should study till grade 7 and then stop school. The girls face more difficulties than boys. If a girl wants to go out with her friends, they say, you are a girl, where are you going? You are a girl, you shouldn't go and come. A lot of girls here are married, but they are afraid to go out. They don't go out unless their husband or father or brother goes with her. So there are girls here that when they become 14, 15, 16 years old, immediately they leave school. Either go work in the land or get married. If the girl doesn't want to work in the land, she gets married and ends her life. Ruba also voices more immediate concerns. You feel as if you're living in a horror movie inside the tent. You enter this room and you're seeing it all moving. The ceiling is going up and down. You enter the other rooms. It's the same as well. It's it's really scary. I'm afraid of the wind a lot to an extent that I have a phobia. If I'm in the school or outside, then it's normal, and I'm not afraid of the wind. But when I'm in the tent, in the camp, I become terrified. And the tent makes noises. So not just our tent, but also the noises of the other tents make me scared because it's really loud and scary. And sometimes I remember that last year there was a lot of wind and I couldn't sleep. I was awake all night, terrified. In any moment, there won't be a ceiling anymore to protect us from the wind, rain or snow. Did you imagine that you would still be in this same camp after 10 years? No. After 10 years, I think things will change and our lives will get better. Hopefully. And we will change the place we are living in because if we stayed here another 10 years, then this is a disaster. Why can't you go back to Syria? To be honest, I think that if we went to Syria, we won't benefit from anything. Maybe because there are a lot of problems. So it would not be good for us if we go back there. But if the situation got better and there is education and work available, then we would go. But now, in the current situation, we won't. I don't want to go back. If I did, I'll remember what we went through and the problems and how we left there. I don't want to live this situation again. No way. I lived it once, and I will not live it again. Back at Nisreen's tent, she and her mother are preparing lentil soup for dinner. Like Roba, Nisreen is also committed to finishing her education. I get sad because they lost their lives for marriage. And early marriage is of course something wrong. If you're under 18 years old, you shouldn't get married. That's for all the girls. The war has spread Syrian families across the globe, including Nisreen's. Her mother hopes to travel outside Lebanon, but hopes for such a move are dim. Resettlement has become increasingly difficult as the war has dragged on. I prefer Canada because my parents are there and I miss them a lot. And if I couldn't go, 
I hope one day they will come and I'll be able to see them and my kids will grow in front of my eyes and most importantly, my daughter to achieve what she wants. Nisreen also hopes to leave for Canada for a better chance at continuing her education. They don't have racism there, but here in Lebanon, there is racism. If I travel, I can continue my education and I can take my freedom in studying. But here, I can't take my freedom because they tell me that I'm Syrian. And that is racism. Why can't I continue? Am I not like you? So here, I can't continue my education. Before we leave, Nisreen shares another poem with us, To Catch a Rainbow, by Sandra Lewis Pringle. Catch a rainbow. If I could catch a rainbow, I would do it just for you and share with you its beauty. On the days, you are feeling blue. If, you, if I could build a mountain, you call your very own a place to find some peace, a place to be alone. If I could take your troubles, I would toss them in the sea. But all these things I'm finding are impossible for me. I can't build a mountain or catch a rainbow. Fair, but let me be what I know. Best friend that's always there. On the next episode, we look at the challenges involved in getting proper schooling for displaced Syrians. Meantime, thanks for listening. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham, and Dan Efron. David Enders reported the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmel, Josephine El Haddad, Elias Abu Atta, John Doutzenberg, and Lobna Hassari for helping bring the series to life. I'm Lynn Cunningham. Syria's Lost Generation is a production of Foreign Policy, in partnership with World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups, purely focused on the humanitarian aspect of the crisis.